And welcome back to The Word Encounter, episode 257, where today we will start our journey into the book of 1 Peter. Now, 1 Peter um, uh, presumably was written somewhere around 64 AD and written probably from Rome. We don't know this for certain, but uh, most indications seem to point to him being in Rome during this time. And if the timing is correct, and if the location is correct, then it seems like Peter and Paul were in Rome at about the same times. And so Peter is writing this letter as a free man. At this time, at this point, he's not in prison, so he's free. And uh, he's writing it to Jewish Christians in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And uh, the reason why he's writing them is because he needs to encourage them because persecution is taking place amongst the believers, and it is soon to be, or if it's not already there, on the rise. And so Emperor Nero uh, had some issues with the Christians. I guess there was a fire in Rome uh, somewhere around uh, AD 64, and uh, he's blaming the Christians for it. And so they were, you heard the phrase, you know, feed the Christians to the lions and whatnot. This was actually happening in Rome at roughly that time. And so, uh, and eventually, presumably, uh, this persecution in Rome would actually catch up with Peter himself. But that's not this time yet. And so he's uh, writing this letter uh, to those Jewish Christians. And so let's get started here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's drop down to verse 3. It says, a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith, through faith uh, for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time or in the last days. And the fullness of the faith will be uh, revealed in the last days. In verse 6, it says, You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. <clears throat> so that the proven uh, character of your faith, more valuable um, than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in, pr- in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so again, he's trying to encourage the believers here. He says, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold. See, the, the, the proven character of your faith is more valuable than gold. But gold, but like gold that gets refined by fire, our faith can get refined by trials which may result in the praise, the glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 8 it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible um, and glorious joy. And see, that, that goes for us. Even though we don't see him, even though we haven't seen him, we don't see him, we haven't seen him, we still believe in him. And because of that, we rejoice in inexpressible and glorious joy because we are receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of your souls. See, And so we're receiving the goal of our faith, even though we don't see the man. We haven't seen the man with our eyes. We see him with our spirit. 
which manifests in belief. And we're receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So we have this hope of the salvation of our souls because we see Jesus in our spirit. A call to holy living in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Don't allow your past to stand in your way of your future is what Peter is saying. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so we are to be holy and righteous. Why? Because that's what Jesus was. That's all the reason that is needed. Because that's what Jesus was. We call on his name, so we are to be like him. It says, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. How you behave on this earth matters. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited uh, from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. For we were redeemed from the empty way of life inherited from our ancestors. That anything, any culture, any cultural attributes, any, well, that's just the way we do things kind of thing that is contrary to the culture of the kingdom of God. That is empty. A lot of times we inherit empty rituals. We inherit empty traditions. But through the precious blood of Jesus, that which is unblemished and a spotless lamb, we take on that culture. Then we have a legacy to pass down. Then we have something that's not perishable. Then we have something that is, in fact, eternal. In verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. This is saying that Jesus was known before the creation of the world. Before God spoke the universe into existence, it says Jesus was known. Jesus existed. How is that possible? I don't know. It says in verse 21, through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable uh, through the living and enduring word of God. And chapter two, the living stone and the holy people. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that uh, by it you may grow up into salvation or into your salvation. We are saved by faith. But what Peter is saying is, look, (laughs) Don't involve yourselves. Get rid of the malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Get rid of all that stuff. Desire the pure milk of the word so that we can grow into the salvation that we've already acquired. 
So we're saved by faith, but we're still infants. We're still babies. And Peter is saying now, okay, you're already saved, but you need to grow into that salvation. See? You need to go grow into um, that, 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 um, the expectation of that position. You need to grow into it. You have it, but you haven't reached maturity yet, and you, so you have to grow into it. It's like a baby. When a baby is born, they become part of the family, but they can't contribute to the family or whatnot because they're babies. So they have to be fed. They have to, you know, their diapers have to be changed. They have to be educated. They have to grow into their responsibilities as a contributing and mature family member. <clears throat> as you come to him, a living stone, well, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. As you come to him, Jesus, who was rejected by people, uh, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so it's saying that we too are living stones, <laughs> but we're being built into spiritual houses. We're being built into the type of uh, structure that can actually contain and house that which we've been given. You see, because again, when we come in, we're just infants, we're just babies. And so in, in this case, we're just a foundation. The house hasn't been built. See, so, but as the house is being built, then now it becomes acceptable to perform certain functions, to do certain things, to house people, to shelter people, to protect them, that just the foundation can't do. <clears throat> Where is it? So it says, uh, you uh, are, as you, uh, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Doesn't it, the wording is interesting, right? And so this is Peter's writing, and Paul had, wrote, uh, had written, I should say, uh, when it comes to salvation, it says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Paul says that you shall not be put to shame and you shall be saved. Peter is saying here, the cornerstone and the one who believes in him, who believes in Jesus, will never be put to shame. So we see the consistency here, you know, with regard to the promise of the truth. In verse 9, it says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a chosen race. Why? You are a royal priesthood. Really? Why? You are a holy nation. Okay. Why? A people for his possession. Wow. Okay. Why? So that you may proclaim his praises. That's why. A lot of times people want to say, well, you should just keep your, 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 your religion to yourself. and whatnot. That's not what the word says. The word says, essentially, we are to proclaim his greatness before man. We are to praise him. And we are to live consistent lives according to those praises. 
That's where the disconnect can be, right? Because a lot of people praise them, but their lives are a mess. <laughs> They're involved in all kinds of sinful activities and hypocrisy, and, 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 and it's, not a good, um, uh, it's not a good reflection on the kingdom of God. So we say one thing, we behave a different way. That's not consistent with the word. A call of good works, chapter 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Why? Because it's a bad reflection on the kingdom of God. It's a bad reflection on God's reputation. Verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when, not if, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will uh, observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. And this is implying on the last day, they will remember all of the people who represented God, who came across their path, but they mocked them, they slandered them, they did bad things to them. Uh, then they will recognize and realize that they were wrong and they will glorify God in the last days. Now, will it be too late? I don't know. I don't know. Verse 13, it says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. That's the interesting scriptures here. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. It doesn't say whether or not you agree with those authorities or not. This is talking about governmental structures. It says submit to every govern governor, president, prime minister, whatever you call them. So submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Don't do it because you agree with them. Don't do it because you disagree with them. Do it because of the Lord. It says whether it's the emperor as the supreme authority that in the United States, that would be the president, prime minister in other countries, you know, kings in other places. It doesn't matter. For it is God's will, for it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Don't give them any reason. Don't give them any cause. Okay, to mistreat you. Now, they still may mistreat you, but don't give them any cause to do so. That's on them. It says in verse 17, <clears throat> honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God. And this one, last one is the interesting one. Honor the emperor. Some translations, it says, honor the king. Today, it would be honor the president, honor the prime minister, honor the, you know, the, the head person in charge, whatever. Now, this, I find this to be very interesting because it says honor. You can totally and vehemently disagree with somebody and still honor them. Honor doesn't mean agree with them. You can still honor them in that way. But I find this interesting because at this particular point in time in history, it's either at the very beginning or it's about to happen. The, the, the persecution of the Christians in Rome is going to be amped up significantly if it already hasn't been when Peter is writing this. So Peter is writing this uh, to the uh, Christians in, uh, in, in Asia Minor. He's in Rome where the amping up of the persecution of the Christians is started. So he's writing honor the emperor and Emperor Nero is the one that is going to be 
the head man in charge of seeking out and essentially executing Christians. And so Peter is writing this in that time frame. <laughs> People are, are, are either now trying to or shortly going to be uh, killing him, his people, whatever, and he's writing, honor the emperor. Honor the guy that's trying to kill you. Wow. Talk about a tough ask. Why? Because when you honor this person, you're honoring God, even if it means this is the one that's going to take your life. He still says, honor the emperor. Submissions of slaves to masters or submission of employees to employers. It says, um, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. You could have a great employer, uh, em- yeah, employer or you can have a, a, an abusive employer. What Peter is saying is that <clears throat> submit to them in all reverence, regardless of what they are or how they behave. For it brings, for it brings favor if... Because of a conscious, excuse me, for it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Peter is saying, look, if because of a consciousness of God, you are, 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 are delivered grief, it brings you favor. I don't know why it does. In other words, it's saying if you suffer because of God, it brings you favor. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? In other words, what good does it do if you get the punishment that you deserve? After all, you're getting the punishment that you deserve. But it says, but when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. If you're doing, in other words, if you get unjustly punished and you endure that punishment, that brings favor with God. You get blessed. How? I don't know. (laughs) Verse 21. It says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you. Peter said, look, this is a part of the deal. When you signed on to follow Jesus, this is part of the expectation that you would suffer because he suffered. For you were called to this because, uh, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that should follow in his steps. So he left an example via his crucifixion of, of, of how we should approach um, uh, persecution. Verse 22, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So when he was threatening, not only did he not threaten back, he actually blessed those that were persecuting him. His response to the people who spat on him, who mocked him, you know, who says, this is the king of the Jews, who beat him, was, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. See, he suffered so that we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
For you were like sheep going astray, but you are you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds we have been healed. By his wounds we have been reconciled. We have been restored to God. We were like sheep going astray, but now we have been reconciled to God through his wounds. For he took on the punishment that mankind deserved. Wives and husbands, chapter three, in the same way, wives submit to you, uh, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, even if you have some unbelieving husband, they may be won over without a word by the way their, their uh, wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. And so this, um, this gives, in my opinion, you know, people who are married to unbelieving spouses hope. It says, look, still submit to you. If, if you're a husband with an unbelieving wife, still do your husband. Do you know, watch over her, pray for her, you know, uh, um, love her and whatnot. Why? Because by your behavior, you might win them over. It says in verse three, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. But rather, what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality, quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And so what is it saying? It's saying is hairstyles and gold and, and is bad? No. It's saying your primary beauty should be the inner beauty, not the external things that you can adore, adorn yourself with. The primary component of your beauty resides inside. And it says in verse five, for in the past, the holy one, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her. You have become her children being Sarah. You have become Sarah's children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. In verse seven, it says husbands in the same way. Live with your wives in an understanding way as the weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Your wife is a co-heir with you. And it says if this is the case, your prayers won't be hindered. Do no evil. In verse 8, finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic uh, love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Don't pay back what people give you. Don't return evil for evil. Insult for insult is what the word is saying here. <clears throat> you were called to give a blessing so that you may inherit a blessing. In verse 10, it says, for the one who wants to um, for the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him speak peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer which implies that his ears are not open to and he will not hear the prayers of those who are not righteous. It says, but the faith, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. It's essentially is what is well, what that says. Uh, 
undeserved suffering in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. Do not fear those who can make the flesh suffer, is what Peter is saying. Because even if you should suffer for righteousness, even if you should suffer for righteousness, not just suffer, not suffer because of something you did and you deserved to, uh, to get the punishment, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, when people see and observe your life and observe the hope that you have in your life and wonder, where is this hope coming from when everything else seems to be breaking down? Peter is saying, be ready to give a defense. Be ready to testify. Be ready to testify of the Lord Jesus to them. Be ready to lead them in a way that turns them to the kingdom of God and invites them to enter. Just be ready. Be ready in season and out. Always be ready. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. You know, it's not saying beat them over the head with the Bible. Do this or you're going to hell. No, it says, yeah, do this with gentleness and reverence keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So do it for the reputation of God. Don't do things out of your own selfish ambition, essentially is what's being said. For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all. The righteousness, excuse me, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The righteousness for the unrighteousness. In other words, Christ sacrificed himself, the righteous, for the unrighteous, us, that he might bring you to God. So he, uh, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And we go on to verse 19. This is interesting because it's not clear what this means. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit in which he also went and make pro a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient. What does that mean? It is assumed to mean by some that when Jesus died on the cross, he descended into hell and made proclamations against those who were in hell because of their disobedience to God. And then he was risen and came out of hell and then 40 days later, ascended into the heavens. In other words, after Jesus died, many assumed that he descended into hell in order to deliver sentences to those who uh, had disobeyed God when they were alive or to the angels who fell with uh, uh, Lucifer. It's not clear. When God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. And so in the ark was Noah, his wife, kids, and family. There are eight people that were saved uh, on the ark when uh, God flooded the earth with the waters. It says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus. And so when uh, uh, Noah and his family were saved uh, uh, on the ark from the flood of the earth, that was a foreshadowing 
of the baptism that we receive into Jesus through, through his resurrection. So that was a, a, a type in a shadow that pointed to baptism. And that is the end of chapter 3. Uh, I was trying to get through chapter 4, but we don't have time for that. So we'll pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 4 tomorrow. Um, everybody remember that Jesus is uh, uh, consistently and passionately sending out his invitation to those who would believe if you can confess with your mouth and if you believe in your heart that Jesus is in fact Lord, as we've already covered in this episode, the word says that you won't be put to shame and that you shall be saved. You won't be put to shame, meaning that your belief will not be a belief in vain. It will not be an empty belief. It will deliver a return. You won't be put to shame. Everybody stay safe, be blessed, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and should he grace us with another day of life, we'll see you in the next episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye.